13. Much, perhaps, as a regiment of soldiers regards the loss of its colors. Another pretty little Cuban lizard is the chameleon-eyed lizard. It is of a brownish color spotted with white, especially about the head. It has many resemblances to the anoles just described, being small, slender, and active. Both frequent trees, thickets, and rocky places, where they run and climb with such quickness as to be sometimes easily mistaken for birds hopping to and fro. The numerous tropical insects are their usual food, varied occasionally by berries and fruits. W.A. Atkinson, A Mother Rabbit's Courage, A True Anecdote. Not long ago a gentleman heard of a remarkable fight between a stoat and a rabbit, he gives an account of it in the field newspaper. His gardener was walking in an orchard when he heard a scuffling and squealing on the other side of a hedge. He looked over, and to his great surprise, saw a rabbit in close pursuit of a stoat. Just as they reached the hedge the rabbit caught up with its enemy, but the stoat hid in the hedge for a few seconds, and then ran along it swiftly, escaping the rabbit's notice for a few minutes. Then it rushed out into the field again, some thirty yards from where it had entered the hedge. Its object soon became clear. It pulled a young rabbit out of a bunch of grass, says the writer, and began to drag it to the hedge. When the old rabbit turned and saw the stoat it went for it again, and jumped on it and bit it in the most infuriated manner, driving it away from the young rabbit, and running it squealing with terror into the hedge, where they both eventually disappeared. It is sad to learn that this brave attempt of the mother rabbit to save her young one was in vain. The little bunny was dead when the gardener picked it up a few minutes later. Stoats will often pursue rabbits across country for very long distances, going steadily on and following the track by the power of scent alone, but it is very seldom that a rabbit will show such courage as to turn the tables and attack its foe. Magic Rods The people of the olden time had great faith in the powers of magic rods and wands. Not only was this the fact amongst the Greeks and Romans, but the belief was found in our own country not so very long ago. Certain trees were famed for their magical virtues, because they were supposed to be the home of some spirit, and rods cut from them were said to have wonderful powers. The belief survives in the conjurer's wand, which, as we all know, does marvels when waved to the sound of hey presto, to the pretended wonder worker of the past. His rod was a most important thing, for by its help he accomplished marvels, or at least pretended to do so. There is a story told about a man who had seen a magician produce water by means of his rod, getting hold of the rod one day. He thought he would supply his house with water by its aid. He said to it, bring water. Soon the wand rushed to and fro with big pails, but when the floors were getting flooded, he thought there was enough water, and told the wand to stop. He did not know the word of command, and so the wand went on just the same. In his rage, he took a chopper, and cut the wand in two. But instead of stopping it brought twice as much, a double lot of pails appeared, and at last the torrent of water washed away the house of the meddlesome man. The magic rod or wand has had several names given to it. A common one was that of divining rod. By the Germans it was called the wishing rod, or wishing thorn which points to the fact that it was often cut from the Blackthorn or Slow. It was supposed that the person who could use the magic rod most successfully was the seventh son of a seventh son. If such a person could be found, the wand, too, should not be cut from very old wood, but it must be more than a year old. Some folks said that the twig chosen to make this rod ought to be one upon which the sun shone both in the morning and afternoon. Again, the magic rod was not simply a straight piece of wood, 
it had to be of a particular shape that of the letter Y when using it. The hands grasped the two arms, so that the unforked part pointed outwards. In houses about the west of England, people will show visitors magic or divining rods, cut many years ago, and now carefully kept as memorials of the past. These rods had various uses. They were not only supposed to show where metal was hidden, or springs of water might be found, but one brought to a person ill of fever might cure him, though he had to pay whatever was asked for it, and make no objection to the price. In some countries, men believe that a magic rod might be got to point the direction in which a lost person had gone. The Chinese, ages before the Westerns knew them, had their magic rods, and generally cut them from fruit trees, the peach being often chosen. But in Europe, the hazel or cobnut tree stands at the head of the list of the trees favored. German farmers formerly cut a hazel rod in spring, and when the first thunder shower came, they waved it over the corn that was stored up, believing that this would make it keep sound till it was wanted. Next to the hazel in importance was the rowan or mountain ash, a tree always associated with the pixies and fairies. Magic rods were frequently made from it, and also little crosses, which if put over the door, were supposed to bring good fortune into a house. Another tree furnishing such rods was the willow, and another was the apple, one carefully avoided was the elder, J.R.S.C., our puss. She came with the evening shades, at the close of the winter day, and her manner implied, as she trotted inside, I am here, and have come to stay. Where she came from nobody knows, and no one has claimed her yet, but she made so free. It was easy to see that she had been somebody's pet. Now the homeless waif on our hearth gives a home-like look to the place, with her warm gray fur, and her satisfied purr, and content in her comely face. She has all the craft of her race, though she does not look like a thief, for she climbed of late up to Charlie's plate, and calmly ate some of his beef. But we all have our little faults, and well will it be with us if, when ruin impends, we can win new friends. Like our gentle and brave stray puss, the cipher telegram, what a shame it island Hugo, that when your father is giving the whole class this splendid treat in honor of your recovery, you yourself should be the only boy absent, Hugo laughed somewhat sadly, yes, I should like to be going, but the doctor says that I must not walk much before Christmas, and no one wants to spend three days in the woods in the middle of December, I should have liked the chance of catching a swallow-tailed butterfly for my collection. I will try and get one for you, answered France, though they are scarce this year. But what is this? How did you get your medal back? As he picked up a silver disc from the table, Hugo had won this medal a year before for a Latin composition for boys under 15, and when Baron Rosenthal's beautiful collection of coins and antique silver had been stolen, the medal had gone to A friend of father saw it in a Berlin curiosity show among a lot of coins, and he sent it back to me. And the coins were are they also your father's? He has gone to Berlin to look at them, and he will be back tonight. But all coins are not easy to recognize. If it had been any of the silver boxes or cups he would have known his own at once. And none of these have been traced. Remember not one. My father thinks they have probably been sold in some foreign country America, perhaps, or England. But see, he left this money for you, so that you can let me know what you are doing. Then you can send me a long cipher telegram every day from the station on the observatory, and it will give me something to do to translate it. And he handed France some silver. During his illness, 
Hugo had occupied himself in inventing a most elaborate cipher, which was the envy of the whole school. Not even the masters could read it, and it was an endless source of amusement to himself and France, who alone was in the secret. All right, answered France, I will send you three telegrams, and catch you three swallowtails too if I can manage it. As he went out of the room, his schoolfellow looked wistfully at the pair of crutches that stood beside his invalid's chair. He was the only son of a very rich German nobleman, and six months before he had been nearly killed in a railway accident. When he began to recover, the Baron had promised to give a special treat to his son's class in honor of the event, and now that the time for the annual excursion had arrived, he was paying all expenses for the boys to remain three days in the forest instead of, as was usual, only one. It is the custom in German schools for each master to take his class for a long day's expedition into the country during the summer, in which he is supposed to open their eyes to the beauties of nature and the wonders of the botanical world and the Baron, who was a very wealthy man, had caused this privilege to be extended that year, but now his son was unable to enjoy it, and this use of telegrams was a suggestion of his father's to prevent his being too depressed by the thought of his disappointment. At five o'clock on the following morning there was a very cheerful party of boys waiting at the station for the little hill-climbing train that was to take them into the heart of the Black Forest. The master, Herr Gruz, was also in the best of spirits. In spite of his failure to make any of the boys listen while he explained to them how the train was enabled to climb a hill, the boys, with their yellow caps, which was the distinctive color of their class, and their butterfly nets, botanical presses, and green specimen cases, were much too excited to listen to him. At last the train arrived, and they all filed into an open third-class carriage, whose only other occupants were two strangers, a tall and a short one also armed with butterfly nets and enormous green cases. Did you see Hugo yesterday? inquired Herr Gruz of France, who was sitting next to him. Yes, sir, I was there a long time. He wished he was coming with us. Well, we all wish it too, said the master heartily. What does he do with himself all day? Invent more ciphers? Mumber sir, he does not mean to invent a new one, answered France, laughing, till someone has solved the present one. I am to send him a long telegram in it every day. What is that? Asked the short stranger, good-humoredly. I did not know there was such a thing as a cipher that could not be solved. One of my pupils has invented one that no one has solved yet, answered Herr Gruz proudly. He should let me see it. Laughed the stranger. I would undertake to read it in half an hour. Then the master and the two strangers began to talk sociably together and the conversation drifted to a discussion on the best place in the locality for the capture of butterflies, especially swallowtails. France listened attentively, for he was firmly resolved that he would not return without at least one specimen to adorn Hugo's collection. Herr Gruz was of opinion that the Koenig was the best place for them, but the stranger said, Mumber for everyone found on the summit of the Koenig there are at least three on the sunny slopes of the Hirschfelsen on the opposite side of the valley. But at last the train journey came to an end, and the boys arrived at the little inn which was to be their headquarters. There they were soon devouring rolls and hot coffee, almost faster than the innkeeper and his good-tempered wife could bring them out of the kitchen. Then, with their pockets and knapsacks full of rolls and German sausage, they started on their first day's expedition to a little lake at the foot of the Koenig. It was a lovely walk, and as they passed now under the cool green pine trees, 
and now along sunny slopes where the cows, with their tinkling bells, were almost buried in sweet-scented flowers, both botanists and butterfly hunters were busy. Finally, after two hours' walk, they reached their halting place at the edge of the forest lake. Continued on page 130, the boy tramp. Continued from page 119, Jason to led the way up a path on the mound, and we all entered the summer house, which was quite large, with seats round the sides and a table in the middle. Have you got the chocolates, Dick? She asked, and at the same time began to unload her own pocket, which contained a bag with some preserved apricots in it, two oranges, and two pears. I often bring my dessert out here. She explained, only today Andy said she hoped I should not make myself ill. Mind you don't, said Dick. Have a pair, Everard, she suggested, and accordingly I took one. Uncle has just started out with Andy in the motor car, she continued. So I want you to begin at the beginning and tell us everything. You know just everything. I looked at Dick, who was pinching an orange so as to make a hole in it to suck the juice. But he did not speak, so... Having eaten a preserved apricot, I sat down next to Jacintha, wishing she had not so hastily drawn away her white skirt, and began, I cannot accuse myself of speaking a word that was not true that afternoon, but it must be confessed that the chief object was to impress Dick with the conviction that I was not what he might easily take me to be. Accordingly, I glossed over the character of Aunt Marion's household, and dwelt upon the wealth and importance of Captain Dalton. I brought tears to Jacintha's eyes when I told her of the loss of the seal, of his death and the difference in my treatment at the hands of Mr. Turton, but what seemed to have the greatest effect on her brother was the story of my encounter with the tramp who stole my money, and the other events of my journey. Still, he said, being the first to speak when I ended the story, I don't see what you are going to do when you get to London. Neither do I cried Jacintha. Oh, I shall do something right enough. I answered with all the confidence I could assume. I tell you what I believe, said Dick. I believe Captain Dalton is not dead after all. You see if I am not right. You don't know really that he was drowned. If he were or not, I answered. He would have sent a telegram, because he would know the seal had been reported lost. Still, you cannot tell, Dick insisted. And if I were to you, as soon as I got to London, I should go to his rooms in the Albany. But this was a point I had already considered. You see, I said, very likely Mr. Turton has been there and told them to keep me. I did not think of that, Dick admitted. Still, I don't see what you will do in London. And, of course, I live there. Though I'm going to a crammer's at Richmond next term. Everard was going to be sent to Sandhurst, too, said Jason to quietly. What a lark, he exclaimed, if Captain Dalton should turn up and you should be there at the same time. But this was more than my imagination at the moment was capable of. I felt very, very far from going to Sandhurst, and, indeed, a kind of sense that Dick and Jason to belong to a different world from mine was fast growing upon me. I say, said Dick, presently, for his manner had now become all that I could desire. How much money have you got left? One and tuppence, I answered, and he looked solemn at that, but still, cried Jason that, you forget the locket, why, of course, there is the locket, said her brother, let us have a look at it, Everard, I took it from my waistcoat again, and holding it close to his nose, Dick at once looked for the hallmark, it is gold right enough, he added, you can sell it for quite a lot of money, 
urged Jacinta, because you picked it up, and you can never find the real owner, I should think you would get a good deal for it, if you don't mind my saying so began Dick, and pausing, he looked into my face, cut along, I said, well, if you took it to sell, the chap might he might think you had stolen it, you see, said Jacinta hastily, we could take you to the bathroom, and Dick could lend you some of his clothes, but Eddie would be certain to find out, and Uncle has kept Mr. Churton's card, and he said that if he saw you he should take you back to Castlemore. Can't go back, said Dick, in a tone of authority. I know, he exclaimed, after a thoughtful silence. What? demanded his sister. Look here, Everard, he explained. There is a good shop in High Street, Foster's, where my people buy things. I know old Foster a decent sort of chap. If I were to take the locket what would you say when he asked you where you got it? Asked Jason th- At that we all stared into each other's faces, and I felt disappointed at the suggestion, for I had judgment enough, after my experience in selling my watch and chain, to see that in my present untidy condition I could not myself deal with the trinket to the best advantage. A respectable jeweler would probably decline to buy it at all, whereas a less honest dealer would not give me a third of its value. I have it, cried Dick, after a few minutes pause, you dropped the locket on the floor, Everard, and with a glimmering of his purpose, I took it again from my pocket and let it fall onto the boarded floor of the summer house, he immediately stooped, now, he said, I can tell old Foster I have picked up a locket and that I don't know who's it island and I want to sell it, I will get my bicycle and ride into the town at once, but look here, old chap, he added, taking my arm in quite a friendly way, you had better not wait here, just hang about outside in the road, and don't let them see you if they come back first in the motor car, I say, Jason, it will look better if you come to Foster's too, it's awfully good of you, I answered as we all went down the slope, how much do you think I shall get, I should think you might get 25 shillings, said Dick, as if he knew all about it, I wish I might, I cried, well, he insisted, you get into the road and keep dark a bit, and we will scorch into the town like anything, with that they both set off across the field while I scrambled through the gap in the hedge, and returned to my former position on the grassy side of the road, lying down and waiting expectantly to see Dick and Jason to ride out through the gate, and with the prospect of obtaining possession of twenty-five shillings, it really began to seem as if the foundation of my fortune had been laid. Chapter XV a very few minutes later Dick rode through the gate followed by Jason, th- who raised an arm as she turned to the right, pedaled up the slight hill, and soon disappeared as she began to descend on the other side. Rising to my feet I had waved my arm in return, and I was strolling about the grass beside the road, already impatient to see Dick and Jason th- returning and to learn the full extent of my wealth, when I heard a motor car panning along the road. A glance showed that it was driven by the man who had accompanied Jason to that morning she spied me in the cornfield, and a few moments later he steered the car into his gate. It seemed a long time before I saw the head of Dick and then of his sister appear above the crest of the hill. Dick, in his eagerness to reach me, pedaled all the way down. I say, Everard, he exclaimed as soon as he reached me. How much do you think? Did you get the twenty-five shillings? I asked. Two pounds began Jason to dismounting from her bicycle, let me tell him, cried Dick, two pounds three and sixpence, he added with an air of triumph, I am most awfully obliged to you, I said, 
as he took a purse from his jacket pocket. Not so bad, he continued, is it? You see I told old Foster he must give a tip-top price, and of course he knows me. At first, I thought he was not going to buy the thing at all, he said he didn't know whether my uncle would like it, and all that, and he said we ought to have bills printed to say it was found, added Jason th- But I talked him out of that, said Dick, and here is the money, he continued, counting out the two sovereigns, a half-crown and a shilling. Mind you don't lose any of it, suggested Jason th- No fear, I answered, I say, where are you going to sleep tonight? asked Dick. Oh, well, I replied, and I am afraid that my newly acquired wealth made me a little proud. I dare say I can find an hotel in Hazelton. Do you think they will take you in? said Dick. I wonder whether we shall see you in London, cried Jason, because we are going home next week. And I say, Everard, said her brother, take my word for it. I should not be a scrap surprised if Captain Dalton was rescued after all, Dick suggested Jason th- don't you think we ought to go into tea? Perhaps we ought, he admitted. Well, goodbye, he added, and with that he held out his hand. When I shook Jason th's a moment afterwards, I wished once again that my own hands were cleaner. Goodbye, she cried. I am glad the locket was not mine. And then they both remounted their bicycles, rode up the hill, waved their hands once more, and disappeared from my sight. In spite of the possession of the money for the locket, a sense of depression fell upon me. I had grown quickly friendly with the pair, and they seemed to bring me back to the life which I felt more acutely than before I had lost forever. Continued on page 134, a lesson in steering. It was a perfect day for the water, and the Fletcher boys, with a good supply of sandwiches, meat patties and ginger beer, had gone off for a day's boating. Their sister Daisy thought it was very hard lines to be left at home, but Mrs. Fletcher would not allow her to go unless a boatman were in charge. The boys know what they are about, and I feel fairly happy about them, she said, but I cannot let my little daughter run any risks. This was disappointing, though the real grievance lay in the fact that the boys did not seem very anxious to have her. They were very fond of their sister, but, of course, They said there were times when a girl was a bit in the way. So Daisy wandered down to the pier, feeling rather forlorn, and longing for the time when the boys' boat would come in sight. Old Steve Tucker was sitting on the end of the pier, smoking his pipe. When Daisy came along, fine day for a sail, Missy, he said, and indeed the dancing blue waters of the bay looked most inviting. Then Daisy poured out her troubles, and the old man shook his head in sympathy. I wonder now if you would be allowed to come along with me in my little sailing boat, he suggested. Do you mean it? Daisy cried. Oh, you good old Steve. I will run home and ask mother this minute. Right you are, Miss Daisy. And I will just go down and put the Mary Jane ship shape. Daisy soon came flying back, having gained the desired permission. Soon the little boat was dancing over the waves. The breeze filled the sail and they made such speed that the houses on the shore fast dwindled behind them. Old Steve showed Daisy how to manage the sail and then gave her a lesson in steering. At first the sail slackened and the boat wobbled a little, but his pupil soon grew clever at keeping the head to the wind and steering a straight course. Oh, I am enjoying myself, she cried. This is ever so much better than going with the boys, because they always want to manage the sail and the steering, and I never have a chance of learning anything. Well, Missy, 
you shall come out sailing with me a few times, and I will soon teach you all there is to know about a boat, and then they will not be able to refuse to take me because I am no good, will they? No fear, Missy, you will soon know as much as the young gentleman and I do believe that is their boat just ahead, so at island cried Daisy, in great excitement, now we will race them, Steve, and give them a surprise, ship ahoy, called Daisy as they flew past, and her brothers were indeed astonished to see their sister steering the boat like any old salt, after that they never said that a girl was a bit in the way, the girl who did not run away, a little French girl only seven years old, named Eudoxy, was playing with tiny Philomene in a field, when the young child made two stains on her pink pinafore, mother will scold, thought the little maid, and trotted off to the river to wash them out, a plank stretched out from the bank to make it easy for people to draw water, and on this Philomene stepped, but she did not know how rotten it was, before she could touch the water there was a splash, and the little girl was in the river, Eudoxy heard her cry out, but did not run away as some children have been known to do when a companion was in danger, she ran at once to the bank, and caught her little friend by the foot, nearly losing her own balance in doing so, though Philomene, all wet and breathless, was a heavy weight for Eudoxy, still she managed to drag her on shore, kiss her, and try to console her, but poor little Philomene was frightened at the idea of facing Mimin after her scrape, she must have been rather a scolding mother, as the little girl was afraid to go home in her wet clothes, so Eudoxy partly undressed in the sunshine, and wrapped her in her own frock, while she ran to beg a change of clothes from the sharp-spoken madam, the mother asked why they were or wanted, promise not to scold, and I will tell you, said the child, the promise was given, and Eudoxy told the adventure, it was not Philo's fault, she said, oh, then, my wicked, naughty, precious, darling Philo, take me to her, said madam, poor Philomene was sitting smiling in the sunshine when the two reached her, Eudoxy with her garments, the mother with tears and kisses all waiting to be showered on her tiny daughter, someone told the story in Paris, and many people were pleased with Eudoxy's presence of mind, and the French Humane Society presented the brave girl with a medal for saving the life of her friend, the hardest work, a fable, a famous Persian king once called around him all the wisest men in his kingdom, and put the following question to them, what is the hardest work in the world? Some answered one thing and some another, but it was thought that still harder work might exist. At last a sage came forward and said, I have lived many years and seen a great many things. I have come to the conclusion that the hardest work in the world is to be forced to do nothing at all, and no one can spend the whole day without doing something or other. The king, anxious to prove the truth of it, tried his best to find out whether this were so or not, as did also his courtiers but they were obliged to own that what the sage had stated was the truth. Hence the proverb, no work, the hardest work. Puzzlers for wise heads. 6. Doublets. Changing one letter at a time, in as few steps as possible. Make one. Cat into dog. 2. Yes. Number 3. Will. Won't. 4. Pony. Cart. 5. Dry. Wet. 7. A-R-I-D-H-M-O-G-R-A-P-H. A short proverb. 1. 9. 10, 12, 11, 8, a French city, 2, 9, 7, 10, 12, a delicious fruit, 3, 12, 10, 8, 9, a kind of file, 4, 3, 
2, 4, 5, to turn in different directions, 5, 12, 11, 9, to tear, to cut asunder, 6, 1, 2, 10, 5, close at hand, 7, 1, 2, 5, 3, 4, 8, organs of sensation, 8, 8, 9, 10, 11, 1, a country in the south of Europe, 9, 8, 9, 10, 1, a very short space, 10, 6, 5, 11, 9, to fall in drops, CJB answers on page 167, answer to puzzle on page 98, 5, Evangeline, 1, Nile, 2, Lean, 3, Liege, 4, Veal, 5, Vile, 6, Nail, 7, Geneva, 8, Nave, 9, Game, answer to picture puzzle on page 28, this picture contains the key to itself in the letters which are found on the walls, the cornerstone, and the gateway I see you Essex if these letters are named in the order given, they form the sentence I see you, Essex, which Queen Elizabeth is said to have written on a wall or a window of one of her palaces, as a warning, or perhaps an encouragement, to Lord Essex, the cipher telegram, concluded from page 124, though it was still only 11 o'clock, the boys were quite ready for dinner when they reached the lake, and when it was finished and they had hidden the rest of their provisions in some bushes, Hergrews gave them leave to amuse themselves as best they chose till he sounded his horn to collect them for another meal at four o'clock. He himself was going to take charge of a botanizing party on the Hirschfelsen, and a junior master was to superintend those who wished to fish in the lake, but France decided to join neither party, as his one idea was to catch a swallow-tailed butterfly for his friend. At last, finding no one with a similar ambition, he started on his quest alone. I will try the Quebec first, he said to himself. If we should meet the strangers again, it would be fun to prove to them that Herr Gruz was right and they were wrong. It was very hot as France toiled up the mountainside, and when at last he reached the place where his search was to begin, he lay down banning under some trees at the edge of the wood. On the opposite slope he could see the yellow caps of his comrades, and the tall figure of Herr Gruz, but where he himself was all was solitude and silence. After a few minutes rest he rose, and having filled his cap with some delicious berries, sat down, almost buried amongst the cool, green plants, to enjoy them, they were soon finished, but he was still too lazy to move, and rolling himself down till the cranberries nearly met above him, he fell fast asleep, he was awakened by the sound of voices, and, thinking it was some of his schoolfellows, he lay still, meaning to surprise them. He was so well hidden that he knew he could not be discovered unless he moved. Then he realized that it was not his comrades, but the two strangers from the train. Look at all those boys over there, said the tall man. It was fortunate that we put them off the scent. If they had chosen to spend the day up here it would have upset our plans nicely. Are you sure, though, that they are all there? Asked the other, doubtfully. There were thirty-two in the train and I can only count twenty-five yellow caps now. You are right, Schmidt, answered the tall man, after a short pause, and who can tell where the others may be? Not I. We must put off our digging till we are sure that they have all gone away for the night. We sh.